0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to try to catch up on some of the news headlines from the last couple of days. We'll also hear from Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. I'll talk with uh, Katie Tubb. She's an energy, uh, I should say, she's a heritage. Expert, will talk about the energy crisis and why the White House excuses won't get us out of this mess. We'll take a look at what uh, makes up the high gas prices we're currently facing. And we'll take a look at um, uh, Russian-American pastors struggling to maintain unity within their churches. Uh, These are Ukrainian and Russian churches uh, who fall on either side of the issue of the war going on there. That and more coming up today. Well, First, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in an address to Congress today, pled with the United States to do more by implementing a no-fly zone, which has been uh, soundly rejected by all of the NATO nations, save one, providing additional aircraft and air defense systems and creating a new security alliance. Speaking to U.S. lawmakers from Kiev, where he's chosen to remain even as Russian forces move on the city, thanked President Biden for his personal involvement and sincere commitment to the defense of Ukraine and the United States for its aid that it's already provided. However, now it is true in the darkest time for our country, for the whole of Europe. I call on you to do more, President Zelensky said. He said uh, he also issued a direct message to President Biden. I'm addressing President Biden. Zelensky said, you, the leader of your nation, I wish you to be the leader of the world. He added, being the leader of the world means being the leader of peace. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, Americans, in your great history, you have pages that would allow you to understand Ukrainians. um, uh, Ukrainians understand us right now when you when we need you right now, he said. Remember Pearl Harbor? Terrible morning, December 7th, 1941. When your sky was black from the plains attacking you, just remember it. He went on to make other references. Uh, September 11th, he referenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the dream that he had for freedom and peace and made a very compelling speech. It was rather interesting. It was Churchillian in its nature. And one wonders what the impact might have been if Churchill had had access to Zoom to speak directly to the world as he did at that time in his time. Uh, The Ukrainians invoked 9-11 Pearl Harbor MLK in that emotional plea to U.S. aid. In response, President Biden announced today that the U.S. will send cutting edge drones to Ukraine as part of an additional 800 billion dollar aid package to support the war and humanitarian efforts. The world is united in our support for Ukraine and our determination to make Russian President Vladimir Putin pay a very heavy price President Biden said America is leading this effort together with our allies and partners, providing an enormous level of security and humanitarian assistance that we're adding to today. And we're going to continue to do more in the days and weeks ahead, end quote. Well, among the weaponry that will be shipped to Ukraine are cutting edge drones, as well as anti-tank missiles, Javelin anti-tank and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, officials familiar with the plan Uh, The president, however, did not mention Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's uh, plea to Congress uh, to enforce a no-fly zone over the country, which would require the U.S. to shoot down Russian jets to clear the airspace, almost certainly escalating the conflict from a regional conflict to an international conflict. Meanwhile, President Biden is making plans to travel to Europe next week for a NATO summit about the war in Ukraine. The White House says uh, President Biden... um, We'll travel to Brussels, Belgium next week for the summit on Russia's war in Ukraine. The White House announced President Biden will join the extraordinary NATO summit that will convene on the 24th. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the president will discuss the ongoing deterrence and defense efforts in the response to Russia's unprovoked and unjustified attack on Ukraine, as well as to reaffirm our ironclad commitment to our NATO allies. I should mention that to Ukraine Zelensky addressed uh, the Canadian Parliament um, as well and received a standing ovation from the Canadian Parliament as well as the joint session of the U.S. Congress. Well, the Federal Reserve announced today that it will raise interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. Hiking rates for the first time since December of 2018 in an effort to curb rising inflation. Following their March meeting, Fed officials said in a statement that the uh, Federal Open Market Committee would raise the benchmark federal funds rate in order to cool the overheated economy, bringing the rate to between 025 To 0.5%. With appropriate firming in the stance of monetary policy, the committee expects inflation to return to its 2% objective and the labor market to remain strong, the Fed said in its March statement, adding that the committee anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate. The Fed previously cut interest rates to near zero in March of 2020 in order to prevent financial disruptions at the onset of COVID, the pandemic and concurrent lockdown businesses. The decision on Wednesday to begin raising rates comes after the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported a consumer price index of 7.9 percent in February over the same month in 2021. The yearly increase in inflation is the highest recorded since 1982. It's expected that the Fed will raise interest rates an additional six times this year. In other news, in an address early Tuesday, the Ukrainian president predicted victory over Russian President Vladimir Putin forces in Ukraine and offered Russian troops a chance to survive by surrendering. As for Russian cyber attacks, Russian-based cyber attacks against U.S. targets have been well tested, according to a cybersecurity executive, Speaking to Fox Digital, Fox News Digital, in an alleged climate coup, world leaders have accused Russia of funding environmental groups in Europe to steer nations away from energy independence. A woman led data battalion, also called a detalion, aims to document Russia's invasion using civilian videos and authorizing foreign airline seizure. Vladimir Putin signed a law Monday allowing Russian airlines to seize foreign owned airplanes so they can be redeployed. For domestic flights. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to uh, look at the news in this next segment. And then we'll hear a conversation with Jason Meyer. Don't lose heart is the subject of his book published by Baker Books, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
1: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later this hour. Jason Meyer, don't lose heart. That's coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, President Biden was rebuffed in calls with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and UAE's United Arab Emirates Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahan. Not sure why. In a case of high stakes fundraising, the Democratic National Committee reportedly pulled in more than fourteen million dollars last month, despite sagging numbers. And the the Idaho Idaho House—that's a little tough to say—passed a bill banning abortions after six weeks and allowing family members to sue any doctor who performs one. Well, saying this is insane, retired Marine Colonel. Mitchell Swan, a Republican candidate for Georgia's 10th congressional district, released a video ad Tuesday opposing President Biden's woke focus in the military amid Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. House Republicans are investigating why, in August of 2021, the United States released a Russian cyber criminal from federal custody early. The New York Times was criticized for publishing an essay by the head of a communist China-linked think tank without disclosing his affiliation. And in a First Amendment misunderstanding, the Miami Herald Capitol Bureau chief was accused of misunderstanding the Constitution after saying Floridians' First Amendment rights are under attack. MSNBC host Jonathan Capehart uh, appeared to call rising state GOP leaders bigots for bills targeting progressive issues, bigotry apparently being redefined as anything opposing a a progressive view. Senator Tom Cotton says the poll and MIG fiasco reveals President Biden's timid leadership in Ukraine. And Rebecca Grant points out that, according to the White House, Vladimir Putin's strategy is escalation without an end game. But she warns, don't you believe it? Representative Steve Scalise reminds that last summer, Vladimir Putin and the world watched President Biden's embarrassing withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Fed rate hike, well, the Federal Reserve uh started raising interest rates this week for the first time in three years. Chinese authorities locked down an entire province in Jilin, which shares a border with North Korea and is home to 24 million people in order to contain the latest outbreak of outbreak rather of covid. Beijing has relied on strict lockdowns and massive testing efforts to control previous outbreaks, attempting to bring covid cases in the country to zero. The lockdown in Jilin marks the first time since the pandemic began more than two years ago that the authorities have resorted to shuttering an entire province. However, that strategy is now being tested with the largest outbreaks China has seen since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. In a bit of March madness psychology, every year the NC2A men's basketball tournament features an underdog team that upsets a powerhouse school, gaining national attention. Who will it be this year? Well, in a mom's journey, an adoptive Kentucky mom has made the journey from the U.S. to Ukraine to try to get her daughter to be out of Ukraine. U.S. reparations are being sought. A Russian lawmaker demanded that the U.S. return Alaska and an historic settlement in California. In addition to paying reparations to Russia over crippling American-led sanctions that put Moscow's economy in a tailspin. while Calling it inhumane suffering, the Ukrainian coordinator for humanitarian corridors being set up to evacuate civilians says cities like Maripol are on the verge of annihilation. Putin has shut down independent media from putting a harsh spotlight on the handling of his handling of the state TV staffer who dared to defy the regime. And Ukraine aid package President Biden announced earlier today, a billion dollars in military assistance. The Russians' invasion of Ukraine has apparently impacted Chinese President Xi Jinping's timetable to invade Taiwan, according to documents purportedly written by a Russian intelligence analyst in one of Moscow's security agencies. And a Russian born American told Fox News that sanctions imposed on Russia by the West are taking a significant toll, but are also rallying Putin's support in a perfect storm. Republicans say President Biden's capitulation to the left on green energy created the perfect storm for Putin to invade Ukraine. And yet another VP slip, a social media account for the vice president, stated Tuesday in a now-deleted tweet that the United States is supporting Ukraine in defense of the NATO alliance, of which Ukraine is not a member. In a familiar Biden snafu, President Biden mistakenly referred to Vice President Kamala Harris as the first lady during remarks on Equal Pay Day. He later joked about the gaffe. Pushing the progressive agenda, Democrats in the House plan to urge the president to ban drilling on federal lands amid record gas prices and the Ukraine war. Seeing the daylight, the Senate passed a bill by unanimous consent Tuesday that would make daylight saving time permanent. A Russian journalist has been released. The journalist who disrupted a live Russian newscast to protest the war with Ukraine was released after being interrogated and fined. Putting Buttigieg on the hot seat, CNBC's Joe Kernan uh, pressed Pete Buttigieg on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's claim that government spending would reduce the national debt. And Gordon Chang points out that China's Ministry of Defense on Thursday threatened to impose the worst consequences on countries helping Taiwan defend itself. Sort of a pre-threat. And Brooke Goldstein suggests the Biden administration is looking to use Russia's war in Ukraine as cover to finalize a nuclear deal with Iran while the world is distracted. And that deal is being negotiated by the Russians. The Fed hike is coming and has come Uh, The reserve uh, will raise interest rates this week for the first time since 2018. This will affect Main Street. The University of Pennsylvania Trans Swimmer will look to close out a controversial season in three events, two of which Thomas ranks first in the nation. Despite the oil crisis, new drilling permits plummeted 85 percent. The Biden administration has considerably slowed its approval of new oil and natural gas leases. On public lands, despite facing pressure to be more aggressive and urge fossil fuel companies to increase their production in the face of high domestic energy prices from the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Biden has dispatched officials to cajole the the Saudis to pump more oil, but they won't take the president's call. The mob bosses of Venezuela and Iran will have to be bribed with U.S. sanctions concessions to be able to sell more. Why not do everything possible to expand American energy production instead? They ask, well, the question will give the president a choice if he says yes, we can hold him to that policy standard. But if Mr. Biden says no, we'll know he's siding with the climate emissary, John Kerry, and the progressive left against the urgent economic and strategic interests of the United States. The voters can judge accordingly. Again, that's The Wall Street Journal. Russia's National Guard chief, Viktor Zolotov, admitted not everything is going as fast as we would like. From another story, the Ukrainian military says it has repelled a Russian attempt to take control of the strategic port of Maripol. The Ukrainian military's general staff said in a statement that Russian forces, retreating after suffering losses. Uh, This report from the front lines includes a timeline map showing where Russia advanced, then stalled, and in some cases lost ground. Meanwhile, video captured uh, the moment a Russian missile hit a city bus. Hugh Hewitt on Xi, Putin and Khomeini. There is no international rules based order when two nuclear powers and one near nuclear power act in concert to evade and assault neighbors, conduct genocide, kidnap Americans. What's it's uh, what's it going to take for Team Joe Biden to wake up to reality to the world? A Russian TV news editor protested the war in Ukraine during a live newscast during that evening broadcast on Channel One Russia. The most prominent news uh, network in the country, a demonstrator with a sign, rushed onto the set, standing behind the anchor and chanting in Russian, no to war, stop the war. The sign was in Russian and in English. Her sign read in Russian, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda. They're lying to you here with Russians against war written in English. Sixty seven percent of Americans say Disney was wrong to oppose the Florida bill. Unlike other polls, this one used the actual wording of the bill, which changed the outcome entirely. Jerry Bauer uh, says here's what's happening when pollsters ask questions based on what the bill actually says. Yesterday, Ed Morrissey looked at an ABC poll that found the opposite, but was clearly uh, fish. Well, background states are. I should say, battleground states are seeing the highest in inflation. The Democrats' worst nightmare is coming true, and the cities of Tampa, Atlanta, Phoenix, and Miami are witnessing double digit inflation. Vladimir Putin signed a law to seize foreign owned planes. Russian President Putin signed a law Monday that would give Russian airplane, airlines rather, the ability to seize foreign owned airplanes so they can be redeployed for domestic flights amid crippling sanctions that have negatively impacted its aviation industry. The law would allow the airlines to take and operate planes leased by foreign companies that have stopped business operations in the country over its invasion of Ukraine, the state-owned TASS news agency reported. The planes will be certified by certification centers and test laboratories, the news outlet reported. The move is an attempt to circumvent Western sanctions that have resulted in multiple countries, including the United States, closing their airspace to Russian airlines. Well, there's uh, more news we'll discuss later in the program. But coming up in just a few moments, we're going to talk with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. We'll also hear from Katie Tubb Energy. uh, She's uh, going to talk about the energy crisis and why the White House excuses won't get us out of this mess. She's an expert with the Heritage Foundation. And we'll look at... um, Russia on the verge of a $150 billion debt and the crippling of its economy, that and much more. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, in a world that's surrounded by 24 hour news and reminders on social media of tragedy and heartache, again, 24 hours a day, it's easy to fall into the abyss of discouragement and anxiety. Well, in his new book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul, pastor and professor Jason Meyer encourages readers to gain sight into who holds our hope. Now, each chapter addresses different types of negative emotions that cause us to lose focus. Maybe we're feeling overwhelmed or defeated. We feel worthless, disappointed. And the future? Well, it's frightening. He says that when we see that the one who is for us is greater than all that is against us, our chains will fall off and our hearts will be free to hope again. Well, Jason Meyer is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Bethlehem Baptist Church and associate professor of New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for Discouraged Soul. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Great to be with you. Thank you.
1: You begin the book in the introduction with a story about Elisha and his servant. Now, when I first started reading that, I thought, okay, where are we going with this? But this is such an important lesson that we learn from a scripture that might seem somewhat obscure out of... Uh, I think it's 2 Kings. Tell us a, a bit about that story and how that relates to our effort to deal with discouragement or losing heart.
2: Yeah, there's some stories in the Bible that just seem downright strange, and you wonder, how could this ever apply to me? So, here in this story, Elijah and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army, and when the servant sees it, he's overwhelmed and cries out, What shall we do? And that's really the way that we can often feel when we're surrounded by difficulty. We might not have a literal army surrounding us, but we have problems that pile up, and we get overwhelmed, and we say, what should we do? And in this story, what's so powerful is that Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened, and they are, and he sees that the the hills are surrounded with these flaming chariots and, and this heavenly army, and Elisha says, those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And it's almost a perfect picture of the way the Bible addresses discouragement, because the one who is for us is always greater than that which is against us, and a fallen world has many reasons to lose heart, and they're real, and they're easy to see, but the real battle with discouragement is this fight for sight, that actually what's always true is that the reasons to take heart are always greater than the reasons to lose heart.
1: In fact, you make the statement, the Christian life is a fight for sight. Um, and how much easier it is to see and recognize those things that run counter to our values and the things that we are threatened by. And it's much more difficult to see the things that are, uh, to see what is for us. Uh, and that the, uh, the degree of, of difficulty makes it harder for us to, uh, to have eyes that see.
2: Yeah, all you have to do to be discouraged is to be cognizant, to be awake, to to realize and kind of take inventory of the things around you that are hard, or all the things that go wrong or could go wrong. We see those so instinctively, and yet the Bible says that things that are eternal are actually more real, more substantial, They they last forever, and therefore... The reasons to take heart are always greater, even though they're harder to see, because Paul can say, we don't lose heart because we know where to look. These momentary light afflictions are actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal those things that we can only see by faith. That's what Elisha was asking God to show his servant. What's really real? And in those moments, we, we take heart because we realize the things that are for me are actually longer lasting, more substantial, and can't fail.
1: yeah. You write that this book will, um, in the book, you look at the issue of discouragement theologically and practically. So what the scriptures have to say and how we walk out uh, what the scriptures tell us is true at times of of discouragement.
2: Yeah, so uh, let's just take a really practical example. So here's an example where the, the Israelites, they're in captivity. The Babylonian army is much greater than they are and they're tempted to be discouraged and lose heart. And God pulls out all the stops in Isaiah 40 with these just God-sized visions of himself. And he says, for example, who has held the waters in the hollow of his hand? And one day I was reading that and just said, okay, I don't have a boring mind here. Let me try to figure out how much water can I hold in the hollow of my hand? I first try to a tablespoon, and actually water went everywhere, so then I did it over the sink from then on, and I got it down to, I could almost fit a teaspoon of water in my hand. And then compare that with God, who can hold, he says, the waters in the hollow of his hand. I I did some research on what that is, and it turns out that all the water in the world is 332.5 million gallons Of water, this uh, not just a gallon of water, but this this unit of measurement that's 1.1 trillion gallon gallons of water, a cubic mile of water, 332.5 cubic miles of water that you then multiply by 1.1 million gallons. It's just it's it's unbelievable. Like you put it into a calculator and you just get that big e (laughs) sign. But they can't compute. And in that moment, what happens is that you're forced to resize the situation. Rather than telling your God how big your problems are, you can start telling your problems how big your God is and realize God is the one that holds the hollows, the water in the hollow of his hand. He's the one for whom the nations of the world are like dust on a scale, like a drop in the bucket and very practically once i preached on isaiah 40 in this couple they were really discouraged because their only child was having needing kind of life-saving surgery at mayo clinic and they were just so overwhelmed well they they heard these pictures from isaiah 40 and they realized that when they got overwhelmed they had a very simple signal to one another to resize the situation, they just held out their hand to each other to remind themselves that they 're in the the hand of God, and that he, the, and when they resize the situation and how great the one is that 's for them, suddenly, they felt like they could be encouraged and trust that he 's greater than what was against them.
1: Mm. Your book is in, in two parts. In the first part of the book, you say that it's like an eye exam. Do you see the greatness of God? Do you see all that you have in Him? And that's what you've just described, how we can begin to see beyond what seems obvious to us, our limited perspective uh, on those things that trouble us uh, that are nearby, but having the capacity to see beyond that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the story that I think really gives me the most hope. It's actually kind of a funny story from my uh, high school years. My my last high school basketball game, I scored my one and only slam dunk in the game, and I was running back to the other side of the court, just feeling like my my feet were barely touching the ground, and our, our fans were just screaming wildly. And then suddenly the opposing fans stopped it all with this chant. They started chanting, Check the score, check the score, check the score. And it worked because we looked at the scoreboard and it turns out we were 16 points down with a minute left. There's no way that we could win. But for a moment, we felt like we were winning, but we forgot we were losing. And so often, the Christian life is like that. We are tempted to feel like we're losing when satan is tempting us and pulling out all of these pulling out all the stops against us for a brief moment we can feel like we're losing when he's persecuting the church so many christians are dying every year and then what the resurrection does is it reminds us check the score he's alive forevermore check the score satan has lost he's not persecuting the church because he thinks he can win but because he knows he's going to lose and his time is short. And so what happens so often when we get discouraged is we're checking the wrong scoreboard. Yeah, yeah that's we're a great. We're looking at the scoreboard of our own analysis and our wins and losses and successes and failures rather than seeing the finished work of Christ.
1: We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. The book is published by Baker Books. It's a small book. It gets right to the point. I think you'll find it very helpful. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul, an excellent little volume that, as I mentioned, gets to the point. In the second part of the book, you dig a little deeper and analyze some of the real life reasons that we tend to lose heart. Explain for our listeners who don't have the volume in their hands uh, how the second part gets a bit more specific with some of the, the things that discourage us.
2: Yeah, I try to analyze some specific reasons we get discouraged. I, I argue there are three different tenses for discouragement, the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. The past tense is when our our past really paralyzes us. We feel worthless. We feel guilty. And in those moments, what's happening, it's not the problem that we go back to those things, to that moment of failure, that moment of sin or shame or whatever it is. It's that we don't go all the way back and take those things back to the cross where they've been paid, and we're no longer guilty of those things. They've been forgiven. We're no longer shamed because Christ has taken our shame on the cross. And so the, the problem often is that our, our, our memories become like a, a twisted time machine that makes us go back to that place of failure and just get stuck there, rather than what Paul does He takes it all the way back to the cross and says it's a trustworthy statement deserving the full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It was for this reason he showed mercy that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to everyone who would believe. So when the past tries to paralyze you with shame and guilt, take it all the way back to the cross, see it nailed there, and say, I bear it no more.
1: Mm.
2: In the present tense, what we face oftentimes is discouragement, and the the gap uh, between what we expect and what we actually have, that distance is often called discouragement. Our expectations are that things are going to go better than they are. And so, therefore, when our expectations are met, we just feel this distance called discouragement. And what we need to realize, number one, is what has God actually promised? He's not being unfaithful to those promises. In fact, Scripture goes out of its way to say, don't be surprised when you face trials of various kinds. Don't count it as something strange. So we have to read the Bible to really understand well, what really should we expect? And what's God doing in the midst of these things? So if you take suffering and you say, I'm discouraged by this because I didn't think life would be this hard. We have to ask, well, this is God caring for me in this moment. Like I remember if you just look at something from one vantage point, you can think it doesn't look very merciful. Like I grew up on a farm and I used to see baby chicks being hatched out of an egg, and you just watch it. It's, it's this process that's so painful. They peck, 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 and then pass out, and then peck, 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 and then pass out. And I once thought it'd be merciful to just break open the egg and let the chick out, but the chick always died, because it was that process that made mm-hmm. the chick strong, enough to have the lungs be strong, enough to live. And that's exactly what the Bible says about suffering. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, because you know that this is for the steadfastness of your faith. God knows that we need to be strengthened. The Christian life isn't a sprint, but a marathon, and these things are making us strong to be able to make it to the end. Or when you get to the very end and you say the future scares us, because it's uncertain, and we don't know what's coming, and we're very good... At being able to forecast trouble we see it coming we anticipate it but we're very bad at being able to forecast grace that mercy Mm -hmm. is coming that God says there's going to be new mercies every morning so if you look into the future and see trouble and then you borrow that Jesus says don't borrow trouble from tomorrow because every day has enough of its own, so if you try to take the cares that are coming tomorrow and paper for them in today's grace, you're always going to be overdrafted in your account. When tomorrow's troubles come, grace will be there every morning. So we have to be able to start forecasting the grace and mercy that are coming as well, not just forecasting our
1: troubles. That's so good. One of the points that you make, you say it's a crucial point of context in understanding um, this process that we go through, is that we were not meant to try to defeat discouragement on our own. And you offer a couple of examples. You make reference to Hebrews twelve one, but you also tell the story, a uh, really a remarkable story about a young man, uh, at Hannah High School, who was on the cross-country team in Anderson, South Carolina. Talk a little bit about the importance of being a part of a community when we're going through times of discouragement and and that illustration that you offer in the introduction of the book.
2: Yeah, I'll never forget reading that story about Ben Komen. Ben Komen had cerebral palsy, and so that condition caused him to fall constantly because he didn't lift his feet high enough when he ran, So he tripped on everything, and then he fell really hard because his brain couldn't send signals fast enough to get his arms underneath him to cushion the fall. So you would be watching him run and fall and get up and be bloodied and bruised, and people in the stands, grown men, would just be in tears watching his perseverance because he kept getting up, and he always finished every race, even though he finished last every race. He finished. And what would often happen is that when the other runners would finish running their race, they would stop at the finish line after they got done and they would come back to where Ben was and make sure in solidarity they were running with him and they finished together. Even people on the opposing team. And when you look at Hebrews twelve, one and two, a lot of people envision the Christian life as It's my race to run. And they forget that all of those words in Hebrews 12 are plural. Let us together run the race with endurance that's set before us. We're not meant to run this race on our own. We're all going to fall and stumble, but Christians are supposed to link arms together and finish the race together.
1: That's such a beautiful uh, illustration. We're talking about the book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the program that I've spent the day watching the debate that's going on in Washington uh, as to whether or not to impeach the president. And it, it can be discouraging and overwhelming and uh, heartrending. It certainly is uh, a national um, a rending of, of our, our country. Um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, events that take place that we're not directly involved in and how they might impact and feed into our sense of discouragement and how we deal with those things that don't directly involve us, but influence um, the way we view uh, our our own uh, situation and our discouragement.
2: Yeah. You know, when you look at something that's happening, like in the political sphere, it's, it's really important to go back to what are the actual promises that we've been given. I remember Chuck Colson, who started the ministry uh, prison fellowship after Ronald Reagan had done one of these rallies, and they actually were, he had just left, and there was this kind of pandemonium. People were so encouraged, and everything that was happening. And, and Chuck Colson, in that moment, actually said, Let's all remember the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. Hmm. <laughs> and it's a, a good reminder for us because we're tempted to put our hope in horses and chariots. Yeah. And it's not wrong. To use horses and chariots, it's not wrong to participate in the political process. But over and over in Scripture, it says it's wrong to trust in that, yes. to put your hope in the wrong things that can fail you.
1: Boy, that's such a, an excellent reminder as things unravel in Washington that have an impact on us Wherever we happen to live in the country, we're just about out of time. But what what is the main thing you want your readers and our listeners today to take home from "Don't Lose Heart" uh, in terms of dealing with a discouraged soul?
2: Yeah, I, the the way that I end the book is the way I'd want to end every conversation I'm in. I feel like, um, but the one truth that you can cling to, whatever you're going through, right? Like right now, if you just can't see what's What's the reason for this? Am I going to make it through this? I remember in Minneapolis, our church is right next to the stadium where the Vikings play, U.S. Bank Stadium, and I got to see it being built, and it started off as just this massive hole in the ground. Couldn't believe how deep they had to dig for this thing. And then uh, one of our pastors said, hey, everybody, how do you like the new stadium? And everybody laughed because it was just a big hole in the ground. And he said, yeah, you're right. Of course you we're laughing. But it's not done. If, if that was the end product, we'd have some serious questions for the architects. But it's the same point when we realize and look at our own life and have to say, God's not done. He's still at work. We haven't seen the final product, so we can't question the architect. And in fact, when you read the Bible, you see this again and again. He wasn't done when Joseph was in prison, or Jeremiah was in the pit, or Jonah was in the fish. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, he wasn't done when Sarah's womb was barren, Ruth was a widow, Virgin Mary was told she would bear a son, wasn't done when Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel, or Jezebel killed the prophets of Israel, or the Babylonians destroyed the temple of Israel, he wasn't done. And he wasn't done when Jesus was mocked and nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb. What we need to see right now in our life, is take that narrative from Scripture and remind ourselves, whatever you're going through, God's not done. He's going to work all things together for our good.
1: Amen. Uh, Once again, the book is titled, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. Jason Meyer, thank you so much for talking with us today, and I would encourage our listeners to check out the book. It's published by Baker Books and available in bookstores. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Don't lose heart. Gospel hope for the discouraged soul. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour, so stay with us.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking back just a bit on the day that uh, President Biden took office, his Department of the Interior issued a memo suspending the authority of local Bureau of Land Management offices to approve leases, drilling permits and mining operations, plans that would support America's oil supply. Six days later, a second memo was sent out by political appointee Laura Daniel Davis, extending the suspension of local authorities indefinitely and making the fate of all future leasing and drilling permits contingent on her personally rubber stamping them. Well, a month ago, on the 15th of February, as the conflict in Ukraine took a turn for the worse and Western nations retaliated against Russia with economic penalties amid already record high gas prices, the president told the public, told us, we're prepared to deploy all the tools and authority at our disposal to provide relief at the gas pump. And he assured us last week, it's simply not true that my administration or policies are holding back domestic energy production. That's simply not true. But... The Biden administration intentionally handicapped the domestic oil industry from day one as part of its mission to transition the U.S. to a green economy. So who or what is responsible for the high gas prices that we're enjoying and what can be done about it? Well, joining us to talk about it is Katie Tubb. She is a senior policy analyst for the energy and environmental issues in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us to help clear up some of this confusion.
3: Oh, thanks for having me on and inviting me into the conversation.
1: Well, first of all, the president has assured us he's pulling out all the stops. He's doing everything possible to bring the price of oil and gas down. Is that a true statement, given what we're witnessing now and what the president has indicated he has done and is willing to do?
3: Absolutely not. And I, I don't honestly don't understand how he can say that, because if you look at um, even just look at his oil import ban um, concerning Russia In that statement, he said, we're not going to accept any more oil imports from Russia. And the next sentence was, and we shouldn't be using oil anyway. We need to transition faster to wind and solar. You can't make a statement like that and uh, assume that policy has no impact. Uh, You know, I think the administration has made very clear from day one that their long-term policy objective is to assure that uh, coal, oil, and natural gas do not have a future in this country. That is a policy that has consequences, and I think we're seeing a lot of those consequences right now. Well,
1: there's no question about that. Well Let's talk about uh, what's going on and what can be done. Uh, crude oil prices, as you um, write in a recent column, Um, account for roughly half the price of a gallon of gas, followed by refining costs, distribution, and state and local taxes. You unpack each one and show where policy choices have impacted uh, the price of gasoline. Let's start with state and local taxes. How does that impact what we're paying at the pump?
3: Well, it depends on what state you're living in. So, for example, California has some of the highest state taxes on Gasoline, And that has to do with the climate policies they have chosen to pursue to essentially punish the use of gasoline. Texas is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where they uh, don't penalize by way of taxes. So uh, the state and local taxes is very varied across the country.
1: And what about distribution? That's the delivery of gasoline to customers. How does that contribute to the price, the cost?
3: Right. Right. So distribution is relatively um, a consistent, stable contributor to prices of gasoline. However, again, I think policy choices make a difference. For example, I'll go back to California again. California and the Northeast, for that matter, have uh, chosen to severely limit the capacity of their pipeline infrastructure, pipeline that connects producers with consumers. Again, that's a policy choice. And so, what California and the Northeast often have to rely on is shipping uh, to deliver that energy, that gasoline, and other energy resources to their customers. Uh, But unfortunately, we have a hundred year old law on the books called the Jones Act, which severely limits uh, the options people have to use for shipping between two US ports. And that severe limitation increases prices that ultimately get passed on to customers. So we have a mix here of state policy choices and federal policy choices that increase the cost of energy.
1: But the emphasis on policy choices that are impacting the cost, yes. then there's yes. refining, the process that turns oil into usable fuel. How does that impact pricing?
3: Right. So with refining, um, again, relatively stable uh, contributor to prices, however, I think we have seen over the years, and especially recently, an increase in the cost of refining and the uh, increased pressure on refiners. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with policy choices. Uh, Some of those um, inputs, those pressure points are environmental policies. For example, uh, come June 1st, the EPA requires a Uh, more expensive summer blend of gasoline to be sold around the country. And it not only costs refiners more to retool their uh, manufacturing facilities, but that blend itself is more expensive. And so that's another contributor to prices uh, that has to do with policy. I think there are other factors, too. For example, the ethanol mandate Mm -hmm. is – um, a factor into increasing the cost on refiners to comply with that mandate. And that ultimately gets passed down to customers.
1: Now, finally, you write about crude oil that provides about 90 percent of Americans' transportation fuel needs. Um, you also make the point that gasoline prices tend to follow the price of crude oil fairly closely. Explain how that impacts the price and how that all works.
3: Right. So crude oil is the uh raw natural resource that gets refined into uh, petroleum products like gasoline or jet fuel or diesel. So it's the main driver of the price of gasoline. So when crude oil prices go up, gasoline goes up. Um, And crude oil is a globally traded commodity. So no one energy producer, no one company can totally control the price of crude oil and therefore the price of gasoline. Um, but I think that kind of gets back to where we started this conversation: is there are policies that influence that price, you know, for better or worse. And I think what we're seeing under the uh, Biden administration is a dedication to policies that restrict supply and discourage the use of oil, uh, such that it makes it very difficult for both producers and consumers to deal with global change in that market and it also increases those prices.
1: And that's by design. It's not inadvertent. Even in the middle of a national security near crisis and with the the prices as steep as they are today, the president remains adamant that the solution isn't to use the energy resources that we have.
3: Exactly. You know, if you go back to that uh, executive order last week when President Biden announced the uh, import ban on Russian oil. I think it's a very clear statement of his strategy and how he thinks about this situation. He thinks the solution is to use a very narrow set of energy technologies, generally wind, solar, electric vehicles. What I'm arguing is that we should be using all of these. We should, you know, the United States has an abundance of energy, wind, solar, a variety of vehicles, uh, options, coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, we should be putting all of those on the table. And I think that's how we actually have an impact um, on the Russia situation, because we're flooding the market with affordable and reliable energy, and that will drive the price down and discourage uh, Russia from leveraging energy markets as a weapon for politics.
1: You write that the only reason American families and businesses aren't hurting more uh, is that um, energy production is happening primarily on state and private lands, putting us uh, a little further out of the reach of the administration's anti-energy agenda. Federal lands, that's pretty much off the table. Private uh, production is the, the essentially the only place that it, it can expand.
3: Right. And I, I think that... Uh case in point that helps illustrate the difference here is you know in in Europe they have committed well over a decade now to policies that have curtailed their own energy production and heavily subsidized wind and solar so they've uh, become import dependent primarily on Russia and the consequence of that is they're seeing prices that are easily four and five times higher than what American consumers are paying and the difference is, uh, excuse me, Europe is import dependent. The United States has energy abundance for now. I would like to hope that in the future we will continue down that road, but um, President Biden doesn't seem to agree with me.
1: Yeah, that's not the course we're currently on. Well, Katie, thank you so much for helping us better understand the situation as we continue to follow what the administration will and will not do to relieve us of the pressure and to uh, deal with what I believe is a national security issue long term. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Bye bye. Once again, Katie Tubb is Senior Policy Analyst at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We want to continue our march through some of the headlines from the last couple of days. We had a radio thon yesterday, so didn't have the opportunity to cover some of the headlines. USA Today named a man as one of the uh, women of the year. It's not a... It's not an onion headline. It's where we live today. They honored the man Rachel Levine as the highest ranking openly transgender official when the Senate confirmed her as assistant secretary of health in October 2021. Well, the insults to women continue from Matt Margolis. In fairness, even Kamala Harris was included among the honorees. So the bar must be really, really low. But it is still insulting that Rachel Levine, a biological man, was included on the list. The Idaho legislature passed a six-week abortion ban. It passed overwhelmingly, and it's headed to the desk of Republican Governor Brad Little. Leaked documents reveal a Wisconsin school district is hiding children's gender changes from their parents. The instruction was part of several recent staff development sessions for teachers in the... uh Eau Claire Area School District in central Wisconsin that focused on safe spaces, gender identity, microaggressions and oppression. According to one of the trainers, parents who disagree with their kids about gender identity issues are guilty of a form of abuse. The trainers also encourage the teachers to be activists, to vote, to demonstrate and to protest. So pitting the teachers who have your child's best interest at heart against the parents who are abusers. While the public wants more support for Ukraine, a Pew Research poll shows a plurality of Americans say the U.S. is not providing Ukraine with enough support. Democrats are uh, uh, split on the issue, split rather on the issue. So this makes a Biden decision much easier, as announced more aid to Ukraine earlier today. San Francisco is now boycotting 28 states. Because those states aren't woke enough for the leadership of San Francisco, which demands you support all abortion and transgender ideologies. Byron York points out that San Francisco is now boycotting most of the United States. California's governor has resisted calls to suspend gas taxes. Governor Gavin Newsom claims removing the tax that disproportionately hits the poor would somehow help oil companies. Okay. California State Comptroller um, candidate Lonnie Chen says the Sacramento politicians don't want to give California drivers the relief they desperately need from soaring gas prices. So here's an idea. They should at least give us transparency into how much we are paying in gas taxes. Every Californian should see at the pump how much in state taxes, fees and surcharges we're paying for each gallon of gas. We can easily see how much in taxes we pay on pretty much everything else we buy with gas prices near six dollars a. Gallon. Let me repeat that. With gas prices nearly six dollars a gallon, Californians deserve to understand how much of that is going to Sacramento. British publisher uh, censored the mention of Taiwan to appease China. So it doesn't just happen here in the United States. Sadly, according to a new poll, vast majority of Americans oppose cancel culture at 77 percent. They view canceling as harmful to American society and 79 percent support the right to public religious expression. A Russian tennis star has been told to denounce Putin or be banned from Wimbledon. Now, the tennis star is not Putin. He's, this tennis star isn't the person who called for the invasion of Ukraine. Yet that person is being held accountable. Sports Minister Nigel Huddleston said we need some potential assurance that they are not supporters of Vladimir Putin. And we are considering what requirements we may need to try and get some assurance along those lines. Well, Starbucks is seeking to phase out disposable cups Maybe they'll just have you cup your hands and they'll pour the hot coffee into them. Seems deep down, Starbucks seeks to phase out Starbucks. Soon you'll be required to bring your own cup to buy a $7 cup of coffee. Uh, Anything a woman can do, a man identifying as a woman can do better. As I mentioned, USA Today just announced its choices for Women of the Year, and one of the individuals is not actually a woman. For its annual recognition, the left media outlet picked Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services Rachel Levine, who spent most of his life as the male he is, a man who identifies now as a woman. In introducing Levine, USA Today writes, Every day across our country, USA Today's Women of the Year, lead and inspire, promote and fight for equity. Give others a place to seek help and find hope. They are strong and resilient women who have been champions of change and courage, uh, courage, often quietly, but with powerful results and often despite their own challenges. Hmm. Well, it appears that USA Today has just increased the difficulty threshold for actual women to meet its influential women's standard, as now they will be competing with biological men for the honor as well. Ohio has become the 23rd constitutional carry state, uh, the latest state to recognize and promote its citizens. Second Amendment right. Buckeye State Republican Governor Mike DeWine signed Senate Bill 215 into law, which allows for residents age 21 and up who legally own a firearm to conceal carry without requiring a permit to do so. The legislation's co-sponsor, State Senator Niraj Antani, explained, "...the Constitution of the United States does not require you to have a permit or license to exercise the rights that are prescribed in the Constitution. Among those rights is the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms." Homicide and violent crime rates have spiked in some Ohio's largest cities over the past two years, causing a jump in the number of Ohioans seeking concealed carry permits up 20 percent over last year. Now, the last hurdle for law abiding citizens to exercise their Second Amendment has been removed, end quote. GOP states are defending pre-born life. On Monday, Idaho's state legislature passed a Texas-like abortion limiting bill that now goes to the desk of Republican Governor Brad Little. The bill was modeled after Texas' unique design, which essentially places enforcement of the law into the hands of private citizens who can sue those who aid and abet abortion after a baby's heartbeat can be detected. If signed by Little, the law will go into effect in April. Meanwhile, West Virginia's legislature just sent a bill to Republican Governor Jim Justice that would ban the abortion of preborn babies diagnosed with Down syndrome or other physical or mental disabilities as a primary reason for seeking an abortion. The bill would also require doctors to direct parents of a preborn child with a disability diagnosis to relevant educational sources. Susan B. Anthony List, state policy director Sue Leibel, observed the West Virginia legislature sent a strong message that eugenic discrimination abortions have no place in our society. No child should be targeted for discrimination and Down syndrome should never be a death sentence. Senator Rand Paul is working to fire Dr. Fauci. The good senator on Monday introduced an amendment that would eliminate and decentralize the current director's position of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the position that Dr. Anthony Fauci has held since 1984. No one person should be deemed director in chief, Paul argued. No one person should have unilateral authority to make decisions for millions of Americans. Paul's proposal would create three five-year term director positions to head each of the institutes. Those positions would be filled by a, pre- a president's nominee who would then need to be confirmed by the Senate. The biggest lesson we have learned over the last two years is that no one person should have this much unchecked power. He asserted that in my amendment... Uh, which will be uh, will get a vote this week'll we'll finally force accountability and fire dr fauci end quote Russia raises sanctions against uh russia phobic American officials Russia's foreign ministry announced sanctions and restrictions against thirteen prominent u s political figures. The list includes Joe and hunter Biden, Hillary Clinton, White House press secretary Jin Saki, Secretary of State Anthony blinken Moscow described its Restrictions as personal sanctions based upon the principle of reciprocity due to what it called the Biden administration's extremely Russia phobic policy. The Kremlin further warned that more Americans will be added to its list. Russia has also raised similar sanctions against 313 Canadians, including the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. As these sanctions will have almost no real impact on those targeted, however, Vladimir Putin's real objective is a PR move designed to build solidarity with Russian people suffering under punitive global sanctions, thanks to his invasion of Ukraine. And the Senate votes to unmask travelers But the president promises to veto. The Senate voted 54 or rather 57 to 40 on Tuesday in favor of Senator Rand Paul's resolution to end Joe Biden's politically theatric travel masking mandate, saying today the Senate has enough said enough is enough and sent a message to unelected government bureaucrats to stop anti-science nanny state required of travel requirement of travel mask mandates. He declared following the vote. Well, last week, as the mask travel mandate was set to expire, Biden's Transportation Security Administration announced another month-long extension. That announcement prompted Paul to act, and he successfully garnered bipartisan support. However, authoritarians will be authoritarians, and the White House has announced that Biden will veto the Senate-passed resolution should it pass the House, a prospect that seems unlikely given that Nancy Pelosi still holds the reins. And finally seasonal border crossings are still up the number of migrants caught illegally crossing Joe Biden's open border in February totaled 164,973 a 60% increase from February of last year you're listening to the georgine rice show we need to take a quick break but i promise we'll be back
0: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Ukraine's uh, capital has been barraged. Three EU nation leaders plan to visit. In fact, I believe they're there now. Joe Manchin comes out against President Biden's Fed nominee, Sarah Bloom Raskin, throwing her confirmation into doubt. She has since been withdrawn. A TikTok influencer blames high gas prices on Putin after the White House gives her talking points. Hmm. A trucker convoy brings traffic and honking to Washington, D.C. Mississippi's governor signs a critical race theory ban. And NBA's Kyrie Irving was forced to watch from the stands, triggering a $50,000 team fine for stepping into the locker room unvaccinated. uh, The Senate confirmed Shalonda Young as OMB director. And the president's anti-fossil fuel Fed nominee withdrew after confirmation stalls. Oh, as I mentioned, San Francisco boycotts most of the U.S. for insufficient wokeness. And Jesse Smollett's lawyer seeks emergency release after dangerous threats. New York failed to account for forty one hundred covid nursing home deaths. An audit says and President Biden plans to travel to Brussels for NATO summit on Ukraine next week. Fox News cameraman was a Fox News cameraman was killed in Ukraine, along with a Ukrainian woman who was uh, helping in that effort. Saudi Arabia is reportedly considering accepting the yuan, the yen, instead of the dollar for oil sales. And China has locked down an entire province in their struggle to contain a COVID outbreak. Well, on this day in history, 1521, Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan and his crew reached the Philippines, where Magellan would be killed during a battle with natives the following month. 1802, President Thomas Jefferson signs a measure authorizing the establishment of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. 1926, rocket science pioneer Robert H. Goddard, he successfully tests the first liquid-fueled rocket at his Aunt Effie's farm in Auburn, Massachusetts. 1945, during World War II, American forces declare they've secured Iwo Jima, although pockets of Japanese resistance remained. 1968, Senator Robert F. Kennedy Democrat from New York announces his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. 1991, U.S. skaters Christy Yamaguchi, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan sweep the World Figure Skating Championships in Munich. But the uh, more colorful story is yet to come. 1994, Tanya Harding pleads guilty in Portland to conspiracy to hinder prosecution for covering up the attack on rival Nancy Kerrigan, avoiding jail but drawing a $100,000 fine. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, Crimeans vote to leave Ukraine and join Russia, overwhelmingly approving a referendum that sought to unite the strategically important Black Sea region with the country it was part of for more than 250 years. Well, Russia, we're told, is spiraling closer to an historic debt default that could ripple throughout the global economy after the U.S. and its European allies hit the Kremlin with a slew of crippling financial sanctions. Now, the sad thing is the oligarchs and Vladimir Putin are the target, but the Russian people will suffer significantly. Moscow's invasion of Ukraine nearly one month ago, the biggest attack on European state in decades, elicited a raft of economic penalties from Western nations, including cutting off a key part of the central bank of Russia by preventing it from selling dollars, euros and other foreign currencies in its roughly six hundred and thirty billion dollar reserve stockpile. Well, the financial fallout has prompted credit rating agencies to downgrade their long-term debt rating for the Russian government to junk status. With Fitch warning that international sanctions have brought a huge shock to Russia's credit fundamentals, it noted additional sanctions remain a distinct possibility. Russia has grasped uh, for a way to soften the blow. The central bank more than doubled its key interest rate to 20 percent in early March after some banks were removed from the SWIFT financial system and the West froze a significant portion of its currency reserves. But the Kremlin is now uh, due to pay $117 million in interest on $2.00. Denominational, uh, denominated bonds on Wednesday. If it fails to make those payments, it will be Russia's first default on foreign debt since 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, according to J.P. Morgan Chase. We're concerned about the developmental trajectory of ISIS in Afghanistan. While our attention is focused on what's happening, and rightly so, in Ukraine, CENTCOM commander says we continue to watch carefully as ISIS grows in Afghanistan. CENTCOM uh, commander General Kenneth McKenzie told the Senate Armed Services Committee at a hearing on global threats and security challenges on Tuesday. McKenzie said terrorism in Afghanistan remains among the prominent threats following the chaotic U.S. departure from that country. We continue to watch carefully as ISIS grows. Uh, They've gone through the winter. They've been able to carry out some high profile attacks. They still aspire to attack the United States and our partners abroad. And so we're going to watch very carefully what the Taliban is able to do and not able to do in terms of controlling ISIS, because, as we all know, the Taliban actually will fight ISIS, and they have a theological dispute, and so they are in opposition. He went on to say, al-Qaeda is a little more difficult to understand because of their cultural interweaving with the Taliban. They still have an aspirational desire to attack us. It will be harder for the Taliban, I predict, to ultimately control their actions, end quote. Well, earlier in the hearing, Senator Deb Fischer, Republican out of Nebraska, asked the general— Would you agree that without sustained um, counterterrorism pressure, terrorism groups are more able to focus on planning and preparing for external attacks? McKenzie replied, I would agree with that statement. McKenzie also said there have been no over-the-horizon strikes on ISIS-K targets since the U.S. withdrawal. I will tell you, we have not undertaken any strikes in Afghanistan since the 1st of September. So holding those accountable for the deaths of U.S. military personnel apparently has not been a priority on August the 31st, 2021, when the president defended the U.S. troop withdrawal and evacuation of Americans and others from Afghanistan. He said we will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorism and targets without American boots on the ground, a very few or very few if needed. The president also told ISIS-K, we are not done with you yet, end quote. Well, on Tuesday, McKenzie told the hearing that he has considerable information on terrorist planning in Afghanistan, and he's prepared to brief Uh, members of Congress in great detail in the closed session that followed. McKenzie did tell the committee that in open session that ISIS has been able to execute some high profile attacks, even in Kabul over the last several months. James J. Carafano, along with Tommy's uh, Wurolinsky, says that Russia's not so secret weapon against, against NATO and the West, refugees, Putin's new weapon. Well, many in the West thought that war in Europe was a thing of the past. Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine put an end to that comfortable fantasy. But Putin's war effort didn't start with a military invasion. Months before the Russian tanks started rolling, he was preparing the border uh, battle space along the EU border. His weapon of choice, mass migration as in refugees. In July of 2021, Moscow's puppet regime in Belarus began brutally driving thousands of desperate migrants to the Polish border. The forced migration was part of the hybrid warfare strategy designed by Moscow, and the West was ill-prepared for it. You can blame the globalists for that. When the Soviet Union fell, they insisted that it marked the end of history. The bright new era would usher in a stateless society that dispensed with inconveniences like popular sovereignty and capitalism. Among the assumed blessings of this brave new world was the right of migration, which would help erase nations determining their own cultures, economies and polity. Unique and magical. It didn't happen quite that way. But uh, pushing for a borderless world not only undermines the stability of the nation state, it created new vectors that bad actors can attack their enemies uh, within. As an institutional policy, the right of migration has failed the test and left us tap dancing through a minefield of social, economic and political problems. They point out that traditionally states manage their legal migration systems to sustain productive and thriving societies. Yet in the 21st century has already been marked by mass migrations driven by nonsensical political agendas and the acts of malicious adversaries. Syria is an example. They launched a refugee flood at Europe, and the first impulse of many Western leaders was to pretend this was little more than a humanitarian mission rather than an assault driving helpless, desperate people north to both pressure and destabilize Europe. In the United States, the new administration has adopted an open borders policy that has allowed millions to flood into the United States with virtually no vetting, no controls, no accountability. These actions constitute assaults on stable states. In addition to imposing massive burdens for taxpayers, they foster organized crime, drug epidemics, transitional or rather transnational terrorism and other security threats and create political turmoil. Sound policies built on public safety, fiscal responsibility and national sovereignty are pushed to the side with predictable results. It's an interesting piece um, uh, which focuses on the fact that the war against Ukraine began uh, when troops were amassed on the border and Belarus assisted in sending um, refugees to the border. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments uh, to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. As we are praying as part of the body of Christ for the church in Russia as well as Ukraine, I was struck by a column I read in Christianity Today suggesting that Russian-American pastors, those here at home, are really combating propaganda in their churches, and there are tensions surfacing among Slavic communities in the U.S., which have ties to both sides of the war in Ukraine. One pastor in Washington state, they actually quote, uh, quote, uh, has relatives on both sides of the flight between Russia and Ukraine. And as uh, wartime propaganda makes its way into immigrant churches around him, he has a spiritual family on both sides as well. And it's threatening to split the church. Uh, you'll recall in uh, the Gospels, we hear one of the things that was uh, challenging in the early church, not the Gospels, but the epistles, one of the things that was uh, particularly challenging in the church were quarrels among believers, and that is a threat facing the, the Russian American, Ukrainian American church in, uh, here in Uh, The U.S. Evangelical pastors here leading churches where Russian Americans and Ukrainian Americans worship side by side. See the stark but quiet tensions between those who believe Russian President Vladimir Putin's justification for the invasion and those who are decrying the injustice of the war. Many have ties to both countries, but the war has highlighted some long unspoken political divisions. This Washington state pastor leads Revival Baptist Church in Vancouver, Washington. It's a 400-person, mostly Ukrainian congregation. He grew up in Ukraine where one of his brothers is fighting and his parents are sheltering, but he was born in Russia where his sister now lives. It illustrates uh, some of the tension among believers in this country as well as others around the world. Um, His sister is also a Baptist. She supports the invasion, seeing it as a natural consequence of Ukraine siding with the European Union and the United States. And she believes that Ukraine should submit to put uh, to Putin. It's hard to discuss, he says. It's a heartbreaking for all of us. You can read more about that in Christianity Today. And it helps us, I think, as we pray for the church in general and for Ukrainian and Russian believers as they, like all of us, are trying to navigate through world events and maintain the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. They would know that we are Christians by our love for one another. And disunity and quarrels in the church is a major issue. We may uh, may not see it as important as it is, but according to Scripture, uh, quarreling and uh, disputes and dissension in the church is a tool of the enemy and somehow uh, through our common heritage in Christ working through all of that is a mate should be at least a major priority but there are genuine sincere differences of opinion uh, different um, historic experiences uh, different um, sources of information informing believers views on the subject we can pray without sorting through all of that pray that God would somehow maintain unity in the church here at home particularly the Russian Ukrainian Uh, believers as well as abroad, because the enemy likes nothing more than to to divide the church when Jesus said how important it was for us to maintain the unity. Also, there was a piece written by Jason Casper uh, that offered um, some insight into how Ukrainians are praying, what their priorities are, and we might join with them. Uh, he writes that the Ukrainian church needs support, but so do the individuals who shepherd the body of Christ. Often they are lost behind the headlines and statistics of war. Even their quotes fail to convey the full depth of their struggle. So Christianity Today asked Ukrainian evangelical leaders to help readers enter their war-torn world by sharing a glimpse of it. Each provided a Bible verse that has proven meaningful for perseverance, pray, uh, prayer requests for both concrete personal needs and more profound spiritual longings, and a Referral to how um, readers can get involved. One of the pastors, and I will not um, say their names just because I don't want to pronounce their beautiful Slavic names, uh, but he is the engagement director for Eastern Europe and Central Asia for Scholar Leaders International. The Bible verse that helps him persevere is Mark 14, 27 through 28, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He writes that sometimes we find ourselves with Jesus, not because we followed him, but because he comes to us as now in our brutal war with Russia. And he asks us as he asked Peter at the Sea of Galilee, do you love me? Still, this comes after breakfast when he has taken care of us first. Uh, even when uh, we fail in the challenges of this war, his friendship is available for us uh, to revive in, and he says what he's praying for. I'm praying for my wife and many other wives who refused to be evacuated while their husbands stayed behind. But I am also praying that this war will shake the conscience of humanity and the theology of the church. No longer can we elevate the national uh, a nationalism that so often requires others to be bought uh, brought low, as we see so many Christians adopting now in Russia. Another, a president of Odessa Theological Seminary, he cites 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and 27. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. He says that last Sunday we celebrated our monthly Lord's Supper for the first time since the war began. The high point was in identification with the sufferings of fellow believers who have loved ones in neighboring nations still on the road searching for accommodation or who have perished in the attacks on so many uh, in so many of our hit cities. But as I took the bread, I knew I was part of the body of Christ. He says he's praying for, praying through the rage of an, almost tangible pain. Instead of my seminary routine, I am an emergency volunteer. Our lives have been smashed. Our souls have been burnt, and there is no end in sight. For the, wholesome, the wholeness of our community, our country, to be restored, we want God to give spiritual insight and moral clarity to the world. Then this storm can turn against the aggressors and disperse them. Another is the foreign affairs director of the Ukrainian Pentecostal Church, as the largest union of charismatic churches in Ukraine, it's part of an administration that's facilitating aid for evacuees throughout the region. The Bible verse cited is Second Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Despite our many troubles, we must remember that today is the day of salvation. We do not feel it, but in Christ we have enough to open wide our hearts to serve the needs of those around us. What we're praying for, he says, I'm praying for supernatural restoration during this Uh, The short nights of sleep, everyone is doing their best physically, mentally and spiritually, but some and especially the youth need delivery from post-traumatic stress. Yet amid the darkness of war, I am praying for the evangelization of the nations in the Russian Federation with the gospel hidden by the black robes of the Orthodox priest. And it goes on from there. You can read more in uh, Christianity Today online and I'll try to share more of their prayer requests and the scriptures that are inspiring those church leaders in ukraine during the height of this uh, conflict as it continues well you're listening to the georgine rice show i hope you will join us here tomorrow i want to thank james blend for producing and engineering half of today's program and sam Moppin for engineering the other half of today's program thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day have a great night
0: thanks for listening to the georgine rice show podcast